Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 103 with Matt Podobinski on a life of fly fishing travel. I love to start every episode by getting a background on my guests and how they got into the outdoors and fishing. So tell me how you got started in, in fly fishing. How I got it, I started in fly fishing. Well, I'll start how I got started in fishing in general. My, uh, my parents have, I'm from Chicago, so it's not the most fishiest place you would think of, but actually a lot of good fishermen come from Chicago. Usually if it's a place with bad fishing, then you actually get good fishermen because you have to be a decent fisherman to catch any fish. But my parents have a house in northern Wisconsin, and so all our family vacations were up there. We didn't go to Disneyland or anything like that. It was all drive up to the house in Wisconsin from Chicago. And uh, we've got a house right on the lake. So anytime I got some free time while we were up there, I was either running around in the woods looking for salamanders or frogs and then fishing off the pier for bluegill when I was real little, and then a little bit bigger bass, and then a little bit older musky and pike and all that stuff. I started fly fishing, I think in 2000. Uh, my cousin and my aunt lived in Denver, and I went out to visit my cousin, and I bought a fly rod to fish for trout. And I still pick up the spinning rod and casting rod and all that stuff, but uh, definitely fly fish quite a bit, probably 50-50 between the two. But most of my working is guiding fly fishing trips at most of the destinations that I've worked at. So how did you learn? Um, you came out and bought a fly rod, but like what, you know, what resources, do you have someone to show you or did you just kind of figure it out as you went? 
yeah, totally figured out on my own, self-taught. Uh, well, I can't say totally self-taught. I mean, definitely picked up things at the different places that I worked or anytime that uh, I met up with someone that was also a fly fisherman, picked their brain about casting a little bit better or something like that. Uh, one of the guys that helped me the most actually was uh, one of my fellow guides in India, Bobby, kind of helped me with the the double haul, just letting line out on the back cast and the front cast. You kind of when you're seeing someone do a double haul really well, you kind of don't know exactly what, what they're doing when they're letting line go. And he kind of helped me perfect that. I already could do it, but uh, took me from probably casting, I don't know, 60 feet to probably a full fly line. People who do it well make it look effortless. And then you go to do it and you're like, I, you know, I feel like I'm doing it, but I'm not doing it to the, to the same degree that, you know, some of the pros are when you see them do it. And it, it just looks like they're not even trying. Yeah, I guess when you when you get good at anything, so if you watch someone that's really good at it, doesn't look too hard. And then when you look someone look at someone who's not good at it, it looks like it's it's real hard. Yeah. So how did you get into um, guiding then? In two thousand five, well, I was in Chicago working in Chicago after high school. I'd gone to a couple semesters of community college, and I didn't really like it. And it's not really what I. Th- thought I was going to be doing after I was, uh, you know, out uh, grown up, I guess you'd say I was working as a security guard and I was like, man, this kind of sucks. I thought I'd be doing something way cooler than this. And, uh, I got a job at club med in South Florida as a sailing and water ski instructor. And first I got a job working with the kids in the kids club there in South Florida. And then the sailing and water ski team kind of saw that I was uh, into fishing and being on the water. So I got switched over to that and did that for three months. And then when I was done doing that, I was looking for other interesting things to do. And I found a uh, advertisement for a rafting company in Colorado that would hire and train guides on the Arkansas river. And thought what better way to be on the water all the time than to become a whitewater rafting guide. And then in my free time, I'll be on the water and I'll be able to fish. So I did that in 2000, either 2005, 2006, something like that. It's a while ago. And I haven't looked back. I've done that every, well, something either whitewater rafting related or fishing guide related every summer since then. The After three summers doing that, I got a job in Alaska on a river where you needed to have whitewater rafting experience in order to be able to guide people on fishing trips. Okay, so when you were when you started off rafting, it was just rafting. It was just whitewater rafting, but you just were kind of honing your fishing skills on the side. Oh yeah, I mean every time that I'm not really into kayaking, so a lot of the guys that were also raft guides were into whitewater kayaking. Uh, it's not really my deal. I don't like being upside down under the water. So anytime I had free time, we were done with rafting trips or whatever. Me and a couple other guys, I was like, "Hey, you guys want to go back out and go fish?" And they're like, "Yeah, let's do it." So I had a like. I don't know, three or four other guys that were really into fishing also. And between the three or four, anytime that we got free time, I always had another guy or two that go out and chase some trout. Well, that's cool. So um, so where did, where did you say you went next after you got that job on the Arkansas and you were kind of like honing your fishing skills? It sounded like you then went somewhere where rafting and fishing were kind of intertwined. Did I get that right? Yes, uh, in Alaska on the okay, okay. Uh, tributaries of the Copper River. I was on the Golcana and the Clutina. And the Clutina is a whitewater river. It's really, really fast. And you, obviously, if you want to take people fishing, you don't want to dump them into the water. So you need to be able to navigate 
down the river in a safe manner and take people to the spots in order to be able to fish. So how does that work? Like, so you're in, it, it sounds like with the primary um, purpose of the those trips be fishing, but you, you kind of need, like there's a, there's a necessity for being able to hit some of this whitewater to get to the spots you're going, or is it like people are booking trips and they want to both experience whitewater rafting and fishing? Probably 50, 50. I mean, obviously if you're in Alaska in the summertime going down a whitewater river with all your fishing stuff and hip boots on and all that, all that, and all your gear, you don't want to be smashing into big waves a lot of the times because kind of the nature of the game is you don't always hit them hundred percent perfect and stuff could fly out. So you want to be able to avoid the worst parts of the rapids. And on that particular river, it's, it's really fast. There's not a lot of uh, gigantic rapids per se. There are some things that you got to watch out for some log jams, some pour overs, but the, the water itself is really fast throughout the whole river. So you got to be able to, read the water, use the river to get to the spots, be able to pull out and be able to get to those small spots that you can fish in a safe manner so that, you know, people aren't falling out of, out of the boat. The water's cold. It's a glacial river. So yeah, you definitely experience a little white water while they're there, but the prime objective would be to uh, get to the spots, be able to fish. And yeah, I mean, people are enjoying the white water too. It's definitely fun. Yeah. No, tell me, tell me about Alaska. Like, was it everything it's cracked up to be? Was it just like your dream job up there? You've never been to Alaska? I have not been to Alaska, no. Oh, you've got to go. If you're into fishing, you're into the outdoors, whitewater, hiking, anything like that, you've got to go to Alaska. I've been to, I've been to 40 countries. I've guided trips in 13. It's probably still right at the top of the list of best places that you can fish and best places that you can go if you're an outdoors person. The scenery is unbelievable. The highest mountains, biggest glaciers, massive rivers. Yeah, you could, you know, spend your whole life just fishing in Alaska or one area in Alaska and not fish all the places that you could possibly go into. It's awesome. So what what about it? Is it particularly the fishing that really drew you there? Um, like in terms of the, the the fish you're catching, the quality of the fishing, or is it um, kind of the overall atmosphere? Because I think a little bit of I'd, I'd like a little bit of both. But um, for me, I think the majority of like why I would like somewhere like Alaska is like the wildness of it, not so much the actual like quality of the fish itself. Um, but like what what about it for you uh, really makes it so magical? Well, if you get into any of the areas where you're off the beaten path, which is not that hard to do in Alaska, I mean, on the road system, people can access it and there's being more and more people that can, that are living in Alaska every year. So some of that stuff gets pressured pretty good. But if you're, if you walk or if you fly into the backcountry, any of that stuff, you're very, you're not very likely to run into anybody else on any of these trips. So the wildness factor of it. You're not fishing for fish a lot of the times that have been fished for a lot if you're getting into the backcountry. So, I mean, you might as well have the whole place to yourself a lot of the times. And I think for almost all of us that are into getting into the outdoors and going fishing, if you could go to a place that was either full of people or had very little or no people, I think we'd choose the one with no people. So, right. yeah, it's a... Yeah, so it's awesome. And there's unlimited possibilities for doing that in Alaska. Basically, I mean, as far as you want to walk or fly or your money is a limiting factor. I mean, if, you're, if you can't ever fly into the backcountry, if you don't have money to do any of those things, you can't go. But you can obviously hike way back in there and people have pack rafts now. So you can 
get to almost inaccessible places relatively easy. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, area in Alaska to, for, for the fishing in particular? I've, I've done some cool ones, but it's such a big state. Probably the my favorite area is the next area that I could go of a, of a new thing. I've been to Northwest Alaska fishing tributaries of the Noatak. I've fished tributaries of the Copper, the, the big copper that drains into Cordova. Uh, I work on the Antioch at Antioch River Lodge. Antioch River Lodge is tough to beat. You can catch everything that you can catch in Alaska in one river. Pike, sheafish, all five species of Pacific salmon, rainbow trout, dolly varden, grayling. So, I mean, as a relatively accessible place for most people, if you could get to the Antioch, that would be that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds like my dream. I really like the uh, the variety. I like not knowing what's on the end of my line. I mean, I know to some extent you you are kind of limiting yourself to certain species by what you're how you're fishing and what you've got in the end of your line. But um, I like when I get a bite to not know that it's you know like oh it's a brown trout because there's brown trout in this river and that's it. You know, I like I like the variety. Right. There's a huge variety in, the, in that area, and it's you know not all areas in Alaska have that. Like the uh, the original place that I worked in Alaska on the Gulcana and Clutina, you're pretty much going to catch either kings, uh, sockeye, grayling, or rainbows. That was pretty much it that they had in that river. The occasional whitefish, um, yeah, that's 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 about it. But on the Antioch, you you've got everything that you can catch in Alaska, pretty much. And we've had guys that have caught all 10 species of catchable fish in the, in a day that they were there, not, oh, wow. not just the week that they were there. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. You got to get a little bit lucky and be there at the right time of the year, but it can happen. And on a normal year, the last couple of years ha- haven't been really that, uh, that normal. The chum runs have been a little bit down, but it's like what you read about in the, you know, articles or books written a hundred years ago, like the first season that I was there, there's something like 500,000 chums that came into the river. Every bend of the river down from the lodge, uh, once the chums were all in, was full of, was full of fish. It was crazy. Unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it. Is there a culture of keeping fish there? Because I know, um, like, I have no problem with keeping fish, but there is generally kind of a culture in fly fishing, especially when you're on a guided trip of, you know, we're putting these fish back because, you know, I want to still have a job tomorrow kind of thing. But um, because salmon fishing and kind of the heritage of that is, it goes so far back in Alaska with like it being a food source, um, do you, you know, do you keep a lot of fish on those trips or is it still kind of a catch and release atmosphere um, like some of the guide trips down here? Well, you definitely have culture in the area of, fishing for food because uh, we're the closest, the where you fly into is the, the village of Antioch and there's a lot of native Alaskans that live there and people that are resident Alaskans that live there at least for part of the year. And so they're fishing for subsistence. Now, we don't do a ton of uh, catching and keeping. We'll, we try to discourage people from trying to bring back a big box of fish. And in the couple of years that I've worked there, we've kind of eliminated that. But we definitely will keep a fish or two to to eat while you're there. You know, keep a she fish to eat for dinner or a couple pike or something. But try to get away from keeping the the big ones and put those back because you know it's it's easy to think that it's a limitless resource. But like the she fish, for example, I don't think they I don't have the literature right in front of me, but I don't think they can spawn until they're about eight years old. Uh, oh, okay. So that's a rel- yeah relatively old fish. So if if you're doing that a lot, then you're you're cutting down on the the reason that you want to be there. You want to be there to be able to catch one of those big fish to 
you know, experience it, whether you want to take a picture of it or not. But yeah, you catch a couple four pounders. Sure. Take a couple back and have them for dinner or a couple pike or a couple dollies. Usually there's tons of Dolly Varden and they're delicious. They're as good as the salmon or, or sockeye or whatever. All of it's really good. And if we get one that's looking pretty decent, we can have a shore lunch or bring one back for dinner or whatever. Cool. Well, um, so how did you get into travel? Because I think that's um, kind of what we're mostly going to talk about today. Uh, I think you might be one of the most well-traveled anglers I've ever talked to, uh, just looking at the, the number of countries you fished. Um, so I kind of want to just dive into some of those places you've been and like what you've experienced along the way. But first, I just want to know, how did you get into this like international fishing scene? Yeah, I don't want to give away too many of my secrets, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Most of it has been a little bit of luck, a little bit of like friends that have been working somewhere else also, and then just being persistent and getting an idea of the place that I wanted to go or a fish that I wanted to fish for and contacting the companies that were there and keep contacting them until an opening opens up and grab it when I get the opportunity to, to go go there and, and do it because a lot of people talk about going to different places, but the, the difference is to actually take the opportunity when you get it. Yeah. So it, it's just like these things have come up for you. Yeah. The, so the first place that I got to go right away in that first winter when I was a raft guide, I got to go to Honduras and I started working as a raft guide there. Also, one of the other raft guides at the place that I worked uh, used to work in Honduras and he told me about this raft company that I should go rafting when I went there. Came up in conversation that I was doing that in the off season because I had a friend that was uh, working in Honduras as an English teacher. So went down there, we went rafting, and the the guy who owned the rafting company said, hey man, you, uh, do you want to work here? Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure, this river looks awesome. It was one of the prettiest places that I'd ever seen. And there's little fish in the river too that I got to fish for while I was down there. So I took him up on that. And kind of snowballed from there. The next winter, I went down to Brazil, worked there as a raft guide. And the summers, I would go back, work in Colorado or go back and work in Alaska. And then the next winter after that, I worked in Panama. And then I started to send out a bunch of emails to different companies uh, as far as the fishing gigs were concerned. And my whitewater rafting got my foot in the door again. I worked in India as a uh, fishing guide, guiding for Golden Himalayan Masir, and you needed to have some whitewater rafting experience there as well because we're on pretty big rivers that drain out of the Himalayas. And once again, you want to be able to take your gear and your people down safely and not have anybody fall out or flip or anything like that. So I got my, there's not that many people that have all those uh, skills all in one package, fly fishing, regular fishing, whitewater rafting, all that stuff. And I, I, I had it already. I had the international trips under my belt too. So I was, I was uh, an easy hire. And so what are you like these days? What are you doing? Like, have, is it, I, I guess I don't know enough about um, kind of the international world of fishing to know how they work. Cause I know you've done like some hosted trips, guided trips. Like what's the difference between those? And like, what are you doing these days? Um, kind of dividing your time between those things. Yeah. So, so what I'm doing nowadays, I'm still guiding, uh, probably six to seven months a year. I guide in Antioch in the summertime for all the Alaska stuff. And then in the winter time, the last two years, I've gone down to Columbia 
working for a uh, company called Fish Columbia that's got a bunch of different operations in the Amazon. Through my travels through the other places, I speak Spanish, I speak Portuguese, so I was an easy hire, good fit for, for those guys there. And a little bit different guiding deal down there just because uh, they've got a good deal. They want to bring in as many local people as they can to give them a reason to be interested in the fishing company as well. So the local guys drive the boats. I don't drive the boat there, although I could drive the boat, but you don't want to take a job away from one of those guys. So I'm, I'm in the boat as a translator, a fishing guide. And then when we're back at the lodge, I'm a translator between the staff and our guests. And then it's also, I guess, a hosted trip as well, just because I'm going back and forth in between the guests and the staff making sure that everything is where it should be and that they're as comfortable as possible while they're there. Okay. And I, I want to kind of maybe transition over into uh, like hearing about some of these places. Like, um, I, I know you have a lot of countries on your list here, so I don't know if we'll have time to get through all of them in detail, but, um, Tell me about, I guess, there, there's like a kind of a common theme that there's quite a few in like Central and South America, um, which is something that we haven't really um, gone into on the show before. Uh, and it's, it, I think it's really intriguing. Like if all the places I could go in the world, I think that would be a really fun place to go. So tell me about the fishing in kind of Central and South America, like the Amazon. Um, you mentioned Colombia, Honduras. Like what is the fishing like in these places? Oh, great question. I'm glad you asked. That's uh, awesome. It's it's as varied as it is in the United States, maybe more. A ton of different species. Obviously, there's thousands of different species on the Amazon. Uh, I guess once you get into Central America, going into the Amazon region, it gets very tropical. And you kind of, the further you go south, it gets more and more like the, uh, the Amazon stuff that you would think about with uh, peacock bass and payara and... Uh, all that kind of stuff. But there are some interesting fish in Central America too. There's guapote, which is uh, another big cichlid. There's uh, another fish that they call a machin. There's uh, some saltwater stuff that comes into the estuaries like baby tarpon and snook. So there's a bunch of cool stuff in Central America too, as well as bonefish and permit and a bunch of other stuff. But I, I think the the, uh, the freshwater stuff in Central America probably doesn't get uh, talked about as much as it should, but I'm, I'm kind of glad it's a secret because it, it, uh, it's good to have some secret fishing destinations to go to every once in a while. But the Amazon stuff is awesome. I mean, all the big stuff in the Amazon is incredible. It's awesome quarry on a fly rod. Peacocks are unbelievable, and there's several different species and subspecies of peacocks. The payara, the big the vampire fish living in fast water uh, tributaries of either the Amazon or the rivers that drain into the Amazon. Um, wolffish, the uh, it's got a jaw like a wolf trap, crazy looking, ugly thing, kind of looks like a bowfin, but jumps like crazy when you hook it. All the big crazy species of catfish that aren't super likely to be caught on a fly rod, but can if they're in the right uh, right spots and you're in the right spot at the right time. Yeah, the the possibilities are endless. And then you go further down to Chile, and you've got all the trout and all that stuff that has been brought down there. So it's it's awesome. When you're in these areas that are so diverse, like I'm thinking of like the Amazon area where it's just, I mean, there's there's probably more species in like one of those rivers than there is in the entire Western U.S. Um, how do you like target a, a specific species? Obviously, you can kind of 
cater your techniques to what kind of fish you want to catch. But um, is it kind of like the luck of the draw of what, what shows up on the end of your line? Or uh, are there very specific ways to say, I want to catch this species and I'm going to you know do such and such to make that happen? Depending on the time of year, the area that you're in, you can target certain species. But there is an element of you really don't know what you're going to catch and you get some oddball things that kind of pop up every now and then that are, that, are, that are mixed in with everything else. Uh, like the Payara, they like a little bit faster water than the peacocks and they don't generally go into the lagoons, but there's sometimes when they do, especially on uh, certain rivers and certain situations. And then the peacocks, for the most part, don't like super fast water, but there are certain subspecies of them that do like a little bit fast water. So it kind of depends on where you're at on uh, how you target them and, and what you use. But they're for, for the most part, they're all fish eaters and they will uh, grab similar flies, like a little minnow style fly is going to get you almost everything that swims down there. And you can scale it up or scale it down for some of the little stuff. But uh, yeah, you can just, just tweak it a little bit. Like there's certain fish that like to be a little bit closer to the bank or a little bit further off, uh, faster water, slower water, deeper, shallower. But yeah, they kind of have their little niches, but there definitely are overlap zones where you can kind of catch whatever. And do you have a, a favorite species from this region that is just like super fun for whatever reason? Hmm. I mean, the peacocks are awesome. The payara are definitely super cool. I probably got to say the Dorado. Uh, they don't share the same waters as the peacocks of the payara, but uh, they're a little bit further west and south, but they're still in, I guess, where the Andes meet the Amazon would be the, the waters that you start to find Dorado in, just because they're a little bit more walk and wade type fishing than some of the boat bound stuff you would be in for peacocks, but it's all awesome. I, I mean, it's only, I only picked that by just a hair and I probably like walking and fishing a little bit more than I like fishing from the boat, but you know, all the places are so pretty and so different. It's, it's tough to pick a favorite. And what's the, the fishing culture like down there? Um, maybe in general. And also I'm, I'm sure fly fishing is becoming a bigger thing now that people are starting to do more international, uh, more like destination fly fishing trips, but just in general, like what is the the culture like down there in terms of fishing? Anywhere on the Amazon where you've got big fish or rivers full of fish like that, you definitely have a fishing culture. Most of it is uh, subsistence fishing culture or selling fish culture, but any of those guys that are, that are really into it, it's just like anything else. Like in your neighbor neighborhood, you might have you know, everybody gets together when you're a kid and plays basketball, but there's like a couple of guys that really like basketball and will play basketball, you know, more than the others and are better at it. And it's the same with uh, like the fishing deal on the Orinoco or something like that. And the local villages, everyone's kind of got to fish or be able to fish for food, but there are certain guys who are really good at it. And let's say tomorrow they didn't have to fish anymore. They would still go back down and they would fish because they like to do it, you know. Uh, some of the areas like that, they're not too much rod and reel fishing, a lot of hand line fishing or fishing with a cast net. But uh, the guys really know the river and they know the places that the fish uh, hide out. They know what the fish eat. So while they, not, they may not be the most well-versed in lures and flies and stuff, they're definitely good guys to talk to about where the fish, certain fish like to be 
or how to get into a certain area or how spooky the fish are because they, they definitely know the quarry that they're going after. So when you're down there, are you almost entirely fly fishing or do you participate in the other uh, like styles of fishing that like, like the hand line and things like that? Haven't done a ton of hand lighting. The guys who are good at it, they make it look pretty easy. We were talking about that before with fly casting, but uh, when you're, so there's times I've seen, I've seen a couple different ways. One of the, the coolest ways that I've seen it is in Chile. They take like a, a coffee can and they drill a hole in it and put a piece of wood in there. So you've got something to hold on to. And then they use it like a spool, like the spool on an open face spinning reel where you spin your lure around with one hand and you throw it and the line jumps off the spool and then you wind it back on the spool as you reel it in. And I've tried it and somehow I don't exactly know the movement that they're doing, but they don't seem to get a tangle. But uh, I, I just got tons of tangles when I was doing it. I was like, man, this is this is way easier when I saw this guy doing it than when I tried to pick it up and go for it myself. And on Venezuela and on the Orinoco, the guys just kind of use it. They still have a spool, but they don't use the spool to like wind it back on while they're fishing. They just kind of pile it up and sometimes they get a big pile of line that gets caught up on it and everything, but they're definitely good, man. They've got some technique while they're throwing the, uh, their lure or their hook with a big fish on it or whatever. They're definitely good. They've taken it to the, the next level. I, I don't know if it's the art form level yet, but, uh, it's better than the, the newbie. The, if you just pick it up and try and do it. I guess when you've been doing it for thousands of years or like your, your culture has been doing it for thousands of years to, to feed themselves, you've got to get pretty good pretty fast compared to someone who's just picking yeah. it up and trying it for the first time. Definitely. Definitely. We, uh, uh, last year while I was down there, uh, we were on a river fishing for peacocks and we came into this lagoon and there was a guy in, in, a, in a small canoe, probably only like a 10 foot canoe, dugout canoe. And he was fishing with a hand line, but with a Rapala and he had all these different uh, casts that he would use. Now, most of you're, you're spinning the lure around and you fling it out kind of like you'd throw a lasso, but he had, he could do it underhand. He could do it uh, offhanded from the left side of his body. If he was throwing it with the right overhand, he had all these different ones that he would use to get it up under the, the brush when he was casting it towards the bank. And I was like, Oh man, that's, that's cool, man. Just like with a, a casting rod or a fly rod, whether you stop the cast short to kind of shoot it under the mangroves or do it a little sidearm or whatever, you know, he had all the same moves, but just with a hand line. Yeah. I feel like it's easy to think that something like that, you know, I'm picturing the coffee can on the stick and in your mind, you're like, well, that's nowhere near as um, like complicated or diverse as something like fly fishing where there's all these different casts and lines and rods. And, you know, you could basically go down an endless hole if you wanted to um, compared to this thing that it must be so simple. And then you realize that like people make everything uh, very complicated when th when they either need to do it all the time or they just like to do it. Like people people have fun like trying like, experimenting with different techniques and things. So um, it's easy to forget that something as seemingly simple as you know a coffee can and a stick. The person who's using that and has been doing it their whole life um, probably has just as many variations of of how to to work that and use it as someone with a fly rod does. Definitely, they're definitely good at. It. There's no doubt about it. I you know, I, I tried it a couple times and I ended up with a big bird's nest and somehow they're managing the line and getting, I'm sure I would get it after a while, but they make, make it look easy. 
Do you have any um, stories that come to mind from this part of the world? I just picture the Amazon is still such a wild place. I know there's you know lots of people that live within the the bounds of like the Amazon, but I think compared to what we're used to, especially in the U.S., it just feels like such a vast, wild place. And you you know have to have some you know mishaps or weird encounters or things like that that happen. Does anything come to mind as like a crazy story that that happened in that region of the world? Been pretty lucky as far as safety stuff is concerned. Uh, never had any, you know, crazy boat flips or anything like that. Little run-ins with weird spiders and animals and stuff like that. Nothing crazy, though, on the Amazon. Have run into leopards outside the tent in India and uh, tigers on safari in India and fishing in tiger tracks in India. Definitely fish right around where jaguars were in the Amazon, but uh, never had anything crazy charge me or anything like that. But I mean, all the stuff is there all the time. And what would be crazy for normal for me, I guess, might be crazy for other people. You know, we've had poisonous snakes in camp, but you just pick the thing up and throw it outside of camp or you have some nasty spider. You just shoo it into a, a bucket and then throw it back into the jungle. You know, I mean, it's you've done it 150 times, so it's not that exciting. But Someone else might tell the story that, you know, the spider was as big as your head and blah, 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 blah. But nothing super nuts that comes to mind, but to each their own with that type of adventure. You know what I mean? So how big a spiders are we actually talking? If you're not exaggerating, are, are they still pretty, pretty gnarly? Oh, yeah, there's real big spiders uh, down in the south of Brazil. This wasn't on fishing trips, but uh, a spider they called a... Carangajera, which means in Portuguese, the crabber or something like that. I'm not sure how it exactly translate translates into English, but it's it's got to be a relative of, of the uh, the bird-eating spider. This thing is massive. I mean, it's if it was on your face, it would cover your entire head from oh. the top <laughs> where your hair meets your head to your to your chin, and there'd still be you know legs on either side. It's gigantic. When if you're walking in the jungle or in the the forest down there. You can hear them walking like you would hear a person walking. You hear like footsteps and, and, and the leaf litter. And you you like think it's another large animal or a person walking and you stop and you wait. And then you hear the footsteps and you turn around thinking it's going to be something big. And then you look down and it's a spider. And obviously the spider's massive, but it's not as big as a, an animal or a person or something like that. And you're like, holy crap, that, that spider's big enough where it's, you can hear its footsteps going through the jungle. Yeah, I think I'd have to uh, get out of there if I saw something like that. <laughs> I think I might lose it. And that's that's probably the most um, unnerving thing to me about like the jungle is the, the creepy crawlies. Um, I'm not a fan of spiders, even when they're the size of a quarter. And I can't imagine hearing one, you know, walking through the woods toward me. I got to tell you, I'm not a super big fan of spiders either. But uh, having had this all this experience with these different spiders, those big giant spiders are some of the most... Uh, I don't know, calm, non-threatening spiders that I've ever run into anywhere. You could literally scoop them up into your hand and they don't mess with you or do anything like that. And I wouldn't believe it. I would think the same way as you do if I didn't experience it myself. And I still, if I see a little spider around the house or whatever, I'm still not a super big fan of spiders. But whereas I would freak out when I was a little kid, I just like scoop it into a bucket and take it outside now because it... It has almost totally got me over my fear of spiders being in the Amazon and fiddling around with those things. Because, I mean, obviously, if 
people around the trip and they see me freak out, then they're going to freak out. So you kind of have to get over that stuff. If you're going to be the, I'm, I'm like the translator in between the locals and the local wildlife. And I, I don't want to be having to, I don't even know how you would <laughs> smash one of those spiders. You'd need a, a dictionary or something. So it's better <laughs> just to scoop it up. Yeah. Right. Just to scoop it up and like say, you know, Hey guys, it's not that nasty. We'll just put it back into the jungle. Everybody takes some pictures of it. And then you just put it into the leaf litter and he goes off on his merry way doing his, spider business you know i mean most of the time we're in their their house we're just visiting they live there all the time so they go back to doing their deal once we leave maybe they're just so big that um they know they're their top dog you know they they don't have that same uh like nervous energy that some of the smaller spiders do you said they're like very calm and i i have to imagine if i were a spider that large um and i saw how people reacted to me i would i would get a bit of an ego and think i don't really have to to try too hard like i can just i can, I can just cruise along and um you know no one's gonna everyone's gonna part ways for me as i come through it's possible it's definitely possible there are some <laughs> ones down there that aren't quite as big as those that uh they do something, I guess you would say, like a rattlesnake does. A rattlesnake shakes its tail because it's it's letting you know that it's dangerous, right? And there's some other types of tarantulas or or nasty spiders that uh, they raise up their front legs and show you their fangs. And that's one of the ways that it shows you, like, hey, don't mess with me. I've got, I've got big teeth or something like that. And, yeah, you see one like that, and, yeah, it's best to just go the other way. That's what I do most <laughs> of the time. I just say, yeah, okay, like, all right. As long as you're yeah, not in you my would. tent, like you can do whatever you want. Yeah, right. <laughs> so tell me more about India. You mentioned India and like tigers and stuff. And that, you know, that's, I, th- I think spiders are one of those things that, yes, you know, there are dangerous spiders out there. For, but for the most part, people are scared of them when they actually mean them no harm. Whereas tigers, I feel like are an actual, you know, threat. You know, that's that's you risking your life being in that area. So tell me more about the fishing in India and also just like kind of the environment of India. It sounds like a... a kind of nerve wracking place being in a place where you're not necessarily the top predator. Sure. So I worked in India, in Northern India on the, on the border with Nepal, kind of in that region there, the foothills of the Himalayas. So it's a little bit different than in the South of India where you'd have like rainforest or something like that. It's a, for the most part, depending on what uh, area that you're in, it's a deciduous deciduous forest. So it's trees that lose their leaves, or if you're up towards the Himalayas, evergreens that keep their leaves all year. So it kind of looks like the forest back home, like in Southern Illinois or in the front range in Colorado. It doesn't look too dissimilar from there, maybe a little bit more uh, lush or something like that. But there are some, there's big critters. There's elephants that live there. There's sloth bear, there's leopards, there's tiger. one of the coolest things about India and all the animals there, all the animals there from the barking deer all the way up to the sambar, which is a, a big deer like in like a, our elk and everything in between, monkeys, peacocks, uh, goats, everything has like a danger call for when the leopard or the tiger is around. So if all the animals start kind of barking or giving the alarm call, you kind of know that uh, there's a big cat around and or big cat or some other predator like that. So you can, can kind of listen to the forest. You look at the forest, it doesn't look like there's anything there. And then all of a sudden everything starts to go bonkers and you know that, uh, okay, there's a tiger or there's a leopard right over there and he's moving left to right and up the mountain because that's the the way that the animals are calling. So it's, it is pretty cool. I guess it is a little unnerving also, but uh, 
I mean, you kind of know what's going on around you most of the time. Like, I guess the tiger's probably going to hunt most of the time in the morning and in the evening, which is probably when, you know, fishing time is most good anyway. But towards, you're not, you're not out on the river at dark if you're in, you know, the tiger reserve or anything like that. You're, you've already made it back to camp because that's when stuff's moving around. But, uh, it's, it definitely is cool. It does put you in your place in the food chain and you, you definitely have to be on edge. You've got a couple other people with you while you're fishing. You've got a tracker, fishing guide. Uh, so you, you've got some backup in case anything pokes its head out. How common are tigers? Cause I, I picture, you know, in the U S we've got mountain lions, for example, but most people have never seen one and that doesn't mean they're not around, but for the most part, when you go out in the woods, you're not, you're not really that, that worried that there's a mountain lion behind every corner. Cause they're not, they're not all over like deer are. Um, but like how, how common is a tiger there? Is it a very rare, um, encounter that you find tracks or see one, or is it kind of like, you know, if you stay here for a decent bit of time, then you're probably going to come across a tiger or, you know, signs of a, a recent tiger visitation sometime, you know, in the past couple of days. Depending on the area, it could be fairly common. So one of the places that I was guiding was Jim, uh, Jim Corbett Tiger Reserve. Jim Corbett was a famous guy in India that hunted man-eating tigers around uh, the turn of the century, 1800s into the 1900s. Into He lived in India up until the time of independence. And then he moved to Kenya. And they named their first national park and their biggest national park uh, after him. And it's got one of the most dense pop densely populated areas with tigers in the world. So they're there and you see their, their uh, tracks fairly common in the buffer zone and down into the reserve. Uh, when I was there, you could still fish into the reserve. They're, they know they don't let you fish into the reserve anymore, which is kind of a bummer because it was an awesome experience. And one of the coolest experiences that I've had in my life, being able to fish into the tiger reserve. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen tiger tracks. I've seen their scratches on trees. I've seen the animals giving the alarm calls for when they're around. I'd say in another area that I fished in northern India, the leopard is probably a little bit more common uh, where you run into signs of the leopard than probably the tiger is there. But uh, they're, they're definitely a big kind of dangerous, scary animal. And they're, you have a fairly decent chance of at least running into the the sign of them. I'm sure that I've been fairly close to both, but I've never seen either one while I was fishing. If you ever talk to Jeff Courier on the podcast, he's got a real cool story of where they uh, ran into a tiger on, I think they were walking either to go fishing or walking to go back from fishing. I've seen leopards as we were driving to and from the river, and I've seen uh, leopard tracks a lot of the times while I was fishing on uh, the rivers in northern India, but I've never seen a leopard while I was fishing. But that's that's just luck. I'm sure they were there. Yeah. So tell me about the fishing itself. Like what, what kinds of species are you fishing for in India? And uh, kind of similarly to what I asked earlier, like what what is the fishing culture like there? Um, you know, is it a lot of fly fishing for these species? Is there like a long fishing heritage there? They definitely do have a long fishing heritage going back to uh, colonial times and before, probably the colonial English are the guys who brought the Masir into the mainstream, letting other people know about it, uh, writing about fishing from that time, uh, kind of made it popular or piqued a lot of people's interest and probably kind of fell out of the radar for a while and then was brought back into the fly fishing scene by the company that I worked for, uh, the Himalayan Outback, uh, and kind of started up the kind of the fly fishing renaissance over in that area for them. 
Uh, it's a really cool fish to target on a fly rod. They run probably harder and longer than any fish in freshwater. You're, they can be in uh, fast water, fast flowing rivers flowing out of the Himalayas. They can be in a little some of the slow spots too if they have like uh, a buffer zone with a little bit flesh uh, fresh water. Like spots that you would think that trout would be in for the most part. They can grab dry flies, streamers. They're kind of a omnivore, they can grab anything that's in the river from organic matter and algae all the way up to little bugs or, or other fish. But super cool fish to fish for. Definitely recommend everybody do it. India is one of the most spectacular places that you're ever going to visit. Tons of animals, tons of birds. Uh, and uh, to catch a fish that runs that fast on a fly gear, I mean, it takes you all the way into your backing if you get a decent size one in a second. I mean, just rips line off like crazy. I'm looking at pictures of Masir right now, and they almost look like a combination of like a tarpon and an arapaima, maybe with like a little carp in there too. Uh, is, is that the fish you're talking about? Yeah, that, that's not a bad description of them. They, they are a, a large scaled fish. They're in the same family as the carp and the barbel. I'd say the European barbel is probably the closest thing that most people would get to the Masir. They're because they, they both live in faster water and uh, they're both pretty fast. They're both pretty good fighters. But probably the difference with the Masir would be they've got the big scales instead of the little scales like the European barbels got. Uh, yeah, they're definitely a, they're a hot fish. Like if you hook one, you know it. They, they, most of the time they don't <laughs> sit there. They, they take off really fast. They don't have a ton of stamina. One of those really, really big long runs is about all they got. And then it's kind of a little bit of a tug of war, tug of war as you bring it back in. But if you're fishing for them with an eight weight, which most of the time is what you're using, then if you catch a 50 pounder, then you've, you know, you've got a fight on your hands. Sure. And the, the last place that I kind of wanted to talk about that you mentioned in your list was Mongolia. Cause that's, I feel like a lot of people's, it's on a lot of people's bucket list now, I think. I think it's gotten more um, well-known uh, just because of, like, time in fishing and stuff. Uh, tell me about Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were fishing for there? What other species do they have besides time in? What's the fishing like? Just give me an overview of Mongolia. Okay, so I, the river that I was fishing in uh, Mongolia was the Egg and the Ur. I was working for Sweetwater Travels, Mongolian time in camps there. They were kind of the company that pioneered the uh, trips there, fly fishing trips there. And they're kind of unique as they run the trips out of a jet boat and some of the other companies run their trips out of either rafts or drip boats. And well, I guess there's a uh, romance to the rafts and the drip boats for fishing purposes. I definitely recommend going out of the uh, uh, jet boats because you can target the areas that have time in, in them and have big time in, in them. Because as you well know, not all areas in a river hold big fish or hold fish. There's a lot of dead area that kind of doesn't hold hold anything. But uh, the other Species in the river besides the taimen. Taimen would be the top dog. Uh, most of the rivers that have taimen also have lenick, which is another member of the trout family. Grayling, uh, pike, uh, burbot, European perch, or Eurasian perch, if you want to call them that. And some spots lower down have some catfish uh, and some carp, but that that's about it. Up in the higher regions where you've got the taimen, it's mostly... The Tymon, the Pike, the Grayling, and the Lenick. Now, are these the same northern pike that we have in the U.S., or is it some other uh, species of pike? That it's depending on which way the river drains. You've got two different species of pike in Mongolia. They drain east into the Amur River. You've got Amur pike, which have black spots on a light background, and if they drain north into Lake Baikal, which is like the rivers that uh, I was guiding on, then you have uh, northern pike. 
So those would be the same ones that uh, that we have. So they do behave a little bit differently. I haven't fished for the Amor pike really at all, but uh, from what I understand, uh, talking to people that have fished for the Amor pike, they're a little bit more of an open water predator, whereas the uh, northern pike likes its little ambush spots. But uh, yeah, you would definitely recognize them right away as the pike that we've got here at home. And they can get pretty big too. Probably the biggest that we caught in the egg in the order was... Probably low 40s, low 40 inches, not pounds, but uh, they probably they definitely take a backseat to the Timon as being the top predator. They are not so much in the fast water. They're in a little bit of the uh, oxbows and lagoons and stuff off the main river. But you'll, every once in a while, you'll catch them in a riffle or something. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of, of this Amur pike now, and if I didn't know better, I would say it was a brown trout crossed with a pike. Like it, it looks like a pike that has kind of the spotting of a, a brown trout. Yeah, they look very similar to our Great Lakes muskie, our spotted muskie that we have here. But uh, it's got rounded fins, just like a pike. Unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't gotten to fish for them yet. But uh, they're on the list. I'd love to do a special trip where I go for just those and uh, the trophy, trophy size ones of them. Uh, but right now, Russia's kind of off limits. I think some of the best size Amur pike are in Russia, but the, they do have some decent sized ones in Mongolia in the. Uh, Geez, I can't remember the of uh, the Amur River drainages that you fish in Mongolia. I can't remember the names of the the rivers there off the top of my head. That uh, oh, the Onan, the Onan River, uh, I believe, drains into the Amur, and they've got Amur pike on the Onan. But uh, haven't done it yet. But it's on the list. If I go back to Mongolia, I would definitely love to target them. Is Timon still kind of the top dog in terms of what people want to come and catch when they come to Mongolia? Definitely, definitely. Most, I'd say probably 90% of the people that are coming to Mongolia want to target Timon. There's a couple of oddball other species there too. There's the uh, Altai grayling, which in Western Mongolia supposedly is the biggest grayling in the world. And there's the Altai osman, which is up in the, the mountains and uh, mountain lakes up there, which is, I guess, a uh, big species of minnow i guess you could say it's probably in the masir family something like that that inhabits those lakes up there which would be a, a cool fish to go after just to kind of see the scenery and catch the fish but the timon's the big one it's the hot you know sexy big trout that grabs surface flies and big streamers and stuff like that and jumps so definitely the top one that people want to go after how big do do timon get uh you know like what would be a what would be a good size timon if you went out and and you reeled one in like what would what would be a trophy fish Anything over 40 inches is a good timing. Anything over 50 inches, I'd say, is a, a trophy timing. And then anything over 60 is, you know, a, a holy crap timing. I okay. can't believe that I just caught that thing. But but they're there. I mean, there's every year while I was there, we had encounters with fish that would be that big or close to that big. And camp record, I think, was like 63 inches or something like that. So they, they get that big for sure. And, and bigger, you know, if you're the camp rep record is 63, then I'm sure that there's fish there that would be 65, 68, something like that. And you said they eat on the surface. What what kinds of surface flies are you seeing for these massive ones? The timon in Mongolia is a little bit special because there are so many rodents in Mongolia. There's, uh, if you look at the Mongolia Book of Mammals, the rodent section is like a third of the book. There's kangaroo rats, there's gerbils, there's lemmings, there's... Uh, rats, there's mice, there's tons of ground squirrels, everything. It goes on and on and on and on. And then like a whole bunch of other little sides, uh, subspecies of those little different rodents. And at one time or another, those fit, those 
animals have to cross the river to get to the other side, just like any other animal. It doesn't really make sense why they cross to the other side because you've got 8 million trees on one side of the river and there's 8 million trees on the other side of the river. And you know, if you spend enough time on the water, you'll see a squirrel swim from one half of the river to the other side. I, I think to myself, why would he do that? Wouldn't he, why wouldn't he just go walk the other way instead of trying to swim yeah. across? But they, they do swim across, whether it's because of wildfires or there's a sexy lady squirrel or lemming on the other side of the river. And when they do, the time and grab them. And uh, so poppers, chuggers, titanic sliders, uh, wake flies that are just like a big ball of deer hair, any of that stuff will catch fish. Uh, the, they definitely are drawn to the surface more in Mongolia than they are in Russia or Europe. In Europe, they have the hucho hucho instead of hucho timen. And talking to the guys that fish for the, the hucho hucho, they say they almost never get them on dry flies. They're all on big streamers. So that's just because they are they don't have all those uh, rodents that are swimming across the river. Uh, and they'll, I mean, they'll eat anything that's in the river. If it's small enough to fit into their mouth, the, a big timon's head is as big as a, a, a St. Bernard's head. So, I mean, they can grab anything. So a squirrel, a snake, whatever, whatever a, a marten or something like that, a, a beaver, anything like that that swims across, they could they could grab them for sure. Not a full-grown beaver, a small beaver, they could definitely grab <laughs> So do, the flies you use for this, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, your typical mouse flies that someone might use for like a brown trout. Would you use that size of fly or would you take your typical mouse fly and basically beef it up until it's the size of like a rat? Like, do, do you have like squirrel flies uh, or are those like too big to definitely. cast? No, uh, they're... You can cast as big of a fly as you can cast on those trips. Okay. If you can cast a really big fly, you'll definitely move big fish. Now, when I first started there, guys were throwing a little bit smaller flies and they ended up throwing there when I left. We had some musky fishermen and stuff that came while I was down there. It kind of changed the game a little bit, but I was definitely pushing for big flies once I went down there and was uh, was telling the other guys and guests like, man, you guys got to throw some bigger stuff because... You know, you know, through, from fishing uh, musky or big brown trout or anything like that, that's a big fish. You can catch a big fish on a small fly, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to move a big fish. Like probably, I don't know, 70% of the time or 80% of the year, uh, the big fish isn't going to move to a small fly. They, they will do it over the course of the season. But if you want to consistently move big fish, you've got to be able to throw a big lure, a big bait out there to get them to move. And it's no different from the time. And if you can throw, you know, and obviously fly tying techniques have gotten way better than they were back in the day. Like now with like a uh, big uh, hollow flies and beast flies and stuff, you can tie a 15 inch fly. That's relatively easy to cast because it's just a uh, kind of reverse tied uh, deer hair. That's hollow that like gives the illusion of being really big, but it's actually, you know, it's not that big and you can cast it fairly easily on a 10, 11, 12 weight or whatever like that. So, you know, there are way, ways around it. But if you're a good caster, you can cast you can cast a giant fly and move the bigger fish, you know, move those 40, 50, possibly 60 inch f fish more than you would on, on a smaller fly. No doubt about it. That's got to be such an exciting take when a 60 inch fish grabs a big ball of fur on the surface. Oh, yeah. It stuns a lot of people like, you know, comes up and makes this gigantic swirl and, and people freeze and they don't set the hook or they just, you know, automatically do the little trout set or yeah. you know, scream and don't do anything. And you see the gigantic splash <laughs> and then the fish is gone, but yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's definitely the draw. A lot of the people will say that you talked about time and fishing will tell you like a time and doesn't fight. 
I think because you're getting a lot of people from the trout world coming over and fishing for time and they're thinking it's going to be like a steelhead and go on like these big crazy runs. But it's a time it definitely does fight. I mean, they they dive down, they jump, they charge the boat, they crazy head shake. Uh, but it doesn't fight like steelhead. It's not going to scream off uh, 100 yards of line for the most part. It might take you into your backing, but it's just not the nature of the way that uh, that fish fights. But I definitely say that it fights. It's super exciting. I mean, if you're getting a fish that big to come up and take a fly and then shaking like crazy on top of the surface, that's that's awesome, man. So I I think it's just the, the the people that you're getting to come over and fish for the time and are thinking more on the trout side with, if you're fishing for big rainbow, in order to deliver a size 20, uh, whatever, you know, pick your fly atoms or something like that. You're fishing to an area where you can possibly catch a big fish. You've got it scaled down and you're using four pound test or five pound test or even lighter sometimes. And if you get a 30 inch rainbow to take it, yeah, the, the fish is fighting like crazy because you have to baby it. Now, if you, if you were yeah, fishing yeah. with 30 pound test for that same rainbow, you could rip it out of the water and drag it up on the bank. So yeah, you can put a lot more pressure on the time. And because you're having to cast a size eight O hook with the, the mouse on it or the, the big giant streamer or whatever, but yeah, they definitely fight. If you're fishing for the time in with, you know, a size 20 atoms and you're hooking a 50 inch time and chances are you wouldn't get it in and you'd be singing a different tune about it fighting. Yeah, it sounds like they fight more out of their size than their personality. Like some fish just have like an oversized fighting personality. I'm, I'm picturing like a smallmouth bass. You can have a 10 inch smallmouth bass on and you think you've got like a monster. Um, or on the other side of the spectrum, like we've been talking about cutthroats recently and how, you know, the take is exciting, but they don't put up like a hell of a fight. Uh, and it sounds like a time and you know, if you're bringing a 60 inch fish in, yes, it's going to pull hard because it, it takes a lot of effort to pull in something that's 60 inches long. But the personality might not be what someone would expect thinking of other like large trout species. I'd say that's fair. I'd say uh, you could, it's kind of like a big giant brown trout where you could catch a big giant brown trout and it could do either one of two things. It doesn't really know that it's hooked and you get this thing close to the raft or the shore and your buddy with the net comes over and scoops it and you've got it. And this is the biggest brown trout you've ever caught. Uh, looking back at it, the fight wasn't that crazy. Or you can get your, get your big giant brown trout that goes absolutely bonkers. It's out of the water four or five times during the flight. It ran back and forth but across the pool four or five times and you barely got it in. And as soon as you get it out, the the hook falls apart or something like that. You know, it's yeah, hooked yeah. you to your absolute limit. And they can do both, right? The time and sometimes it'll be the craziest thing ever. It's jumping out of the water, going down, screaming line out, or you get this big fish in relatively easy because it didn't even really know that it was hooked yet. And the chances of a big giant smallmouth doing that, pretty low. It's probably going to go crazy one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. So it probably has yeah, more of the attitude of the big giant brown, where you might get one that goes nuts and you might get one that kind of comes in relatively easy. Gotcha. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you um, before we wrap up is, like, you've, you've traveled to so many places. Is there a place that's still on your bucket list that you uh, are really hoping to go to someday that you haven't been to before? Oh, yeah. So, so two things. I love to talk about uh, where I'd like to go. There's a few places I'd like to go. And there's one thing I want to mention uh, before I forget about it. There's uh, So one of the companies that I work for, Fishing for Dorado in Bolivia, they just opened up a new place in Brazil fishing for a special type of peacock bass. That uh, There's not a ton of places to fish for this peacock. Most places that you fish for peacocks, they're not necessarily in fast water. And uh, this peacock is called the Panema peacock bass, and they get big, close to 20 pounds, 
and they're in fast water and you can target them with a fly. And then this new lodge, Panema Lodge, it's just going to be just fly. So you're not having to worry about uh, other people targeting the fish with lures and stuff while you're there. And the first season opening there is going to be this fall. And uh, if you've never been fishing on the Amazon before, I'd highly recommend it because uh, it's going to be it's going to be awesome once it gets up and going. It's in a super pretty area, clear water, fast water, rapids. And you've also got the opportunity to catch uh, Bikuda, Payara, uh, probably some other incidentals while you're there. And as you can imagine, peacock bass fights pretty crazy anyway. And if you put the other obstacle of fast water in there and a fish that lives in the fast water, it's that much stronger, that much cooler. So that's definitely a place that I want to go. I haven't been there yet, but I'm probably going to be either hosting trips there in the future. And if people want to contact me about hosting trips there, that's great. Or uh, guiding there, possibly not this fall, but next fall. So it's definitely on my radar of places that I want to go. But yeah, I'm always wanting to push the, the limits of uh, different fish that people haven't caught on fly before. So there's some, there's some ones that uh, I've got on on my list of things that I want to catch for sure. There's the, the mangar, which is a relative of the masir that lives in tributaries of the Tigris and Euphrates. Probably one of the best places you can catch it would be Iran. And we don't have the best relations with Iran now, so I probably won't be going there super soon, but I'd still love to do it. Uh, there's some interesting fish in Southeast Asia, uh, the yellow cheek carp, which is in China, and tributaries the Amur River is a really cool one that I'd love to target on a fly or conventional tackle. Uh, the jungle barb or jungle perch would be cool. Giant snakehead would be cool. Uh, there's the pike barb, which is another cool one. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I'd like like to go after. Africa is another big one. Haven't fished in Africa a ton. I fished guided in the Seychelles but I haven't gotten uh, tiger fish yet on a fly. So that would be definitely cool to go after the tigers. So it sounds like you um, base your destinations a lot on the fish you want to catch. Like it's it's not as much about like, oh, I'd like to go to this place and then we'll see what the fishing's like. It's like you have a, a bucket list of species you'd like to, to check out. And then that kind of um, takes you around the world in search of those species. Is that kind of an accurate description? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, I was, you know... Uh, that's exactly right. You know, I, I think of some places have such a draw that they're such a cool place that you wonder what there is to catch there. And there's definitely that as aspect to it also, but definitely some of them I've got the, I've got my target already and I'll go through whatever it takes in that area visiting there to like get to the target. And at the end of it, at the end of the trip, when you've gone through the trip and done all of it, you've got like a thousand more reasons to go back. Like you've got a bunch of friends or a bunch of cool stuff that you didn't know was there besides the, like the original target of the fish or whatever. But uh, yeah, that's most of the time the original target is the fish. And then we go from there. Do you know how many species you've caught? Do you have a running list? No, I have, I, my list is all stuff that I want to catch, not the stuff that I, I have caught. So I've got like, I'm a few years ago, I, I'm maybe like 20 years ago already. Now I made a list of like stuff that I wanted to go after and uh, I'd like to go back and, and check it out and see how many of the ones that I've, I, I've checked off of it. I, I haven't done that in a while, but definitely checked off a few, but uh, there's, there's definitely some more on there. How about you? How about, uh, you know, having, having talked to me and talked to a whole bunch of different people that have fished all over the place, uh, what kind of places would you like to go and, and experience and fish that you'd like to target, that kind of thing? Uh, my number one um, has always been Kamchatka. 
and I think that will stay number one until if and when I can go do that. Um, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully like Russia is still an option, uh, you know, into the future, but that would be my number one choice. Um, Alaska is a definitely a much more uh, doable. Like that's not really a, a matter of if that's a matter of when um we will end up in alaska at some point um we're doing belize uh in june which will be our first saltwater trip so i'm really excited to check out some of those species but um, apart from that like destination wise um i think south america would be really cool uh we're talking about doing a slovenia trip in uh, a couple years and so marble trout might be on my list there so i apart from kamchatka that's like the one that's like the one crown jewel on my bucket list that i'd really like to check out and apart from that like I just like catching new species. I'm not I'm not a species snob in that when I go somewhere I have to catch like the one game fish that is there. Like I, I wanna catch as many species as I can wherever I go. Um any species is is valid to me. So um basically I, I guess maybe I'm the opposite of you, whereas I like to go I like to go to a place and then find out what is there to catch here and then just catch as many things as I can while I'm in that place. But I don't have a lot of like species on my bucket list specifically. Yeah, I guess I've got more destinations, but really anywhere. Like I just, I like to see how fishing is around the world and in different places. And I haven't done much international fishing. I've done some fishing in Australia and I guess that's mostly the extent of it. But yeah, I guess I'd say Kamchatka is my number one. Where'd you go fishing in Australia? Oh, I was, uh, I lived in Townsville for six months. So um, I just did some fishing like in and around Townsville, uh, a couple of the rivers I guess just one of the rivers in town I fished and then um, we did a little bit of ocean fishing, not with a fly rod, with a like squid on a hook that we dropped down. I caught like a little hammer, hammerhead shark. Um, I didn't catch a lot of stuff when I was there. I didn't, I didn't have my own gear. So it was like, if I could find locals who had gear, I would borrow it and go out for the day. But um, it was cool. I'd like to go back and do some more intentional fishing there at some point. Where's Townsville on the map? Where's Townsville on the map? If you're looking at uh, Australia. Uh, Northern Queensland. Northern Queensland. Okay. Haven't done Australia, but I lived in New Zealand for a year and I got to fish all over the place while I was there in New Zealand. I'd love to go to Australia. Loved, I, you know, I didn't mention barramundi or queenfish or Murray cod or any of that stuff, but that's definitely on my list too. I'd, I'd love to do all that stuff that's there in Australia and then going to the Northern territories and the outback and all that, that, that'd be really cool. So I haven't done it yet. Been there in the airport, but it was on the way to New Zealand. So I haven't gotten to check that one off. If there's anybody out there listening and wants to invite me to Australia, I'd, I'd definitely take them up on it. You know, it's funny because New Zealand is is obviously like a world-class destination for trout. Um, and it's, you know, it's got the the monster trout that you don't really encounter very often in North America. But all things mm-hmm. considered, like compared to other international destinations, it's kind of similar to the U.S. in terms of like you go there and you catch like browns and rainbows. Um, they're bigger than what we have here. But, you know, c- compared to Australia, which is right across the, the ocean there, um, like barely, and they've got a completely different set of species. It's kind of interesting how how similar New Zealand is to the U.S. in that way. Yeah, it's because we put all the trout there. Not not right, we, right. people from the United States, but the people that moved in there. I wish they would have had a little bit more imagination when they stocked the fish and would have dumped in all the species of salmonids and seen which ones would have taken. It would be cool if they put in marble trout and timon and grayling and everything, and you could catch all the different <laughs> stuff that would be there in one crazy trout menagerie of, uh, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau of trout would have been Right. Really cool thing to do. If I could go back in time, I'd suggest that to them. But it's pretty cool. It's yeah, and you're right. It's similar to the United States. They speak English, and that's kind of the the goofy thing when I see people going over there and spending tons of money on uh, the guides and stuff in New Zealand. Is 
oh, what, what are you spending so much money for to go fishing in New Zealand? You, you know, if you go to the Amazon, sure, you got to spend some money to go there because how do you get to the destination? How do you get to the middle of nowhere? And then you don't speak the language. And then you have to be with someone because there's, you know, uh, quote unquote, killer animals and stuff around that knows the area. But in New Zealand, there's no killer animals. They speak English already. Uh, it's just trout. We know how to fish for trout already for the most part over here. And, you know, there's not that all those different barriers to go through. You can just go there and walk into the outback and, and figure something out and fish, which is what I did. I caught plenty of big fish while I was there. Not to talk bad about the guides and stuff over there. I, you know, go ahead and pay for the guides and stuff in New Zealand if you want to. But you can do you can definitely do a DIY if you want to walk in uh, New Zealand. Yeah, it kind of feels like if you're flying that far around the world that when you get there, there should be something exotic and exciting. And then it's just like, well, you know, you got to be able to find the big fish and catch them. You know, getting them to eat is, I'm sure, no easy task. But at the end of the day, like, you, you know the techniques. You just got to you gotta pull right. it off. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, which is uh, what we did while we were there. Yeah, it was cool. Loved it. I would definitely go back. I've been back uh, three times uh, since, I, since I lived there and loved every minute of it. It's, it's, it's crazy being in an area that wild or, uh, you know, outbacky because you're, you can get as far away from anything as you want to get in New Zealand. But the only thing that you've got to worry about is like the outback itself. There's no bears, there's no crocodiles, there's no anacondas, there's no leopards or anything like that. I, you know, I'm used to watching over my shoulder and listening to all this stuff. I, I, who cares? I left my food out. I did whatever the heck I wanted. You didn't have to worry about anything. You know, I'm in there yeah. waiting around, you know, just shorts on. You don't have to even wear waders. It's great. Well, it sounds like you have lived, uh, you know, or you've you've traveled to more places than most people will in their lifetime. So it's a just a really special thing that you've gotten to see, like all these different these different areas that um, are so different from each other. It's it's such a cool way to kind of experience fly fishing. Oh, it's been it's been awesome. It's been, you know, it's I wanted to be Indiana Jones when I was a little kid, and I've come I think as close to it with a fly rod <laughs> or a fishing rod in general as you can. Uh, I've gotten to you know see find artifacts in the bottom of the river as I was fishing long. I've gotten to eat with local tribesmen in Northeast India. I've gotten to make a fly fishing movie in Northeast India. I've got to meet a lot of really cool people out of other, you know, fishing personalities and stuff and, and be on podcasts like like yours. So it's, it's exceeded my expectations and hopefully it keeps going the way that it's going because I like it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> Well, uh, just to wrap up, where can, you know, do you have any social media? Where can people find you if they want to follow along or shoot you a message or um, anything like that? Yep. We've got uh, MP Wilderman, M-P-W-I-L-D-E-R-M-A-N at Instagram is my Instagram. And then MP Wilderman at Yahoo.com is my email. If anybody's interested in hosted trips and any of the destinations that uh, we talked about on, on the show, they can contact me and we can figure it out or wants a little bit of information on when the best time to go is or what flies to use or any of that stuff. I'm always happy to talk to people about it. Uh, and if anyone wants to organize some sort of side trip to any of those destinations or something like that, I'd be happy to talk about it. So yeah, I'm pumped to talk about fishing for anything, anywhere with just about anyone. Sounds great. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time. I had a great time chatting with you today. Yeah. And, and I with you and Katie, uh, let's do it again. Let's do another podcast sometime if you want, or meet up again on destination in Colombia with Fish Colombia or Panima Lodge in Brazil or wherever. You got to make time to take time to do the stuff that you want. And I, I hope, hopefully we see you there. Or I didn't mention this with uh, Kamchatka. Obviously Kamchatka we can't do right now, but 
Antioch River Lodge. It's close to as Kamchatka, close to Kamchatka as they're going to get to it. A lot of mouse fishing up there on the Antioch for big rainbows. You are in the middle of nowhere. Don't see that many people. It's not Kamchatka, but it's close. Well, you know, I'm I'm almost absolutely certain that we will end up in Alaska before we end up in Kamchatka. So I will definitely hit you up if we find ourselves up that way. All right, for sure. All right, thank you, Matthew. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.